Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, we have the history of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told his apostles before he ascended to heaven not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they're waiting in Jerusalem, and then we come to Acts 2, and it's Pentecost. We think of that in terms of uh, the outpouring of the Spirit, but Pentecost was actually a feast, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks that was held every year, and that accounts for the many Jews in Jerusalem, even from all the far-flung reaches of the Jewish dispersion from many different nations, Jews had come for this feast. And so we read in Acts 2, verse 1, the very word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, these uh, 120 disciples of Jesus. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit On all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God has raised up, of which we are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'd like to focus this morning on verse 33 in the context of Acts 2, verse 33. Therefore, Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Let's bow in prayer and ask for God's help and blessing. Shall we do that? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word and for this true history recorded for us. We pray that you'd open our eyes to your word, that you cause it to be preached truthfully. And we pray that the very spirit spoken of here would fill our hearts and lives to believe. That he would continue to shape us, to mold us, to convict us, to challenge us, and to assure us through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Help us, God. Amen. This morning we consider the great event of Pentecost. Pentecost was an event, a once-for-all redemptive event, never to be repeated. It was an epoch-making event, and there were five of those that are now accomplished in Jesus Christ. Five events that we have to hold together and mark out as unrepeatable events that brought the history of the universe to a new place. The first of those is the incarnation of the Son of God, that, that the Son of God came down and, was, and took up human nature, was born of Mary. We speak of Christmas. And then the next redemptive event, the crucifixion. Our Lord Jesus offered his life on the cross for the sins of his people. He atoned fully for our sins. We, we speak of Good Friday. And then, of course, Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the Father lifting him up and thereby declaring as he gave life to the dead body of Jesus, announcing that death could not hold him because he had fully satisfied God's justice, and therefore death has no claim. And then 
Jesus Christ, 40 days later, after his resurrection, was lifted up into heaven. We speak of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was taken up. And then, 10 days after the ascension, Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Spirit, Pentecost fully come, the great harvest now to begin. But what does Pentecost mean? What does this outpouring of the Spirit mean? That's what I'd like to consider this morning. And as we look at Acts 2, verse 33, in the context of Acts 2 here, it means at least three things. First of all, it's the evidence that Christ has been enthroned. The outpouring of the Spirit is the evidence that Jesus has been seated firmly upon the throne of heaven and earth. Secondly, the outpouring of the Spirit signals that we have entered into now a new age. A new age. And then thirdly, the outpouring of the Spirit is sent as the power now by which the dominion of the King in heaven will advance upon the earth. The Spirit is the mighty power for that new creation. Well, if I asked you coming in this morning, if I told you, hey, did you know it's Pentecost Sunday? What's, what's Pentecost mean? I suspect that 99 out of 100 of us would have said it's about the Holy Spirit. But if you asked Peter, what does Pentecost mean, what would he have said? He would have said it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 2 verse 33 is very clear that Jesus being exalted to the throne, receiving from the Father the Spirit, pours out the Spirit upon his people. This verse, verse 33, gives us a window into the glorious dealings of heaven. Now, we, we like to know what goes on behind closed doors oftentimes, and, and therefore, you know, we have tabloid newspaper kind of things and, and, and internet gossip and so forth, because we often don't know for sure what went on behind the closed doors. And in fact, there's sometimes good reasons for that, of course, and, and there's even legally binding contracts that, that can be put in place to ensure that we don't find out, speak of non-disclosure agreements that can be contracted to, to, to guard trade secrets or protect business interests so that somebody who has vital information won't disseminate it and thereby ruin the company or bring down the stock price or whatever. But there's also non-disclosure agreements that are contracted when when somebody has done something horrible and now they're paying off the victim and they're saying, here, now you promise not to tell. But you see, God's interests cannot be diminished by telling and there's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. And so God pulls back the curtain and he tells us what went on behind closed doors in heaven. The son came to his father having accomplished redemption and the father gave him the spirit. That's what happened. I was watching this past week a little bit of a World War II documentary, and it was intriguing to me to hear again the, the, the references and so forth to, to the dealings between the British Prime Minister Churchill and, and the U.S. General Eisenhower and, and, and their discussions and negotiations and agreements and promises to each other. It's fascinating because out of those decisions, the world was forever changed, right? But here in verse 33, we're lifted up into the heavens to see the transaction of the Father to the Son, to the Christ, the mediator, in which the Son, who came in human flesh and was anointed by the Spirit, 
And in the power of the Spirit, he went forward facing temptation, overcoming Satan in the wilderness. And he went forward healing the sick and casting out demons. And in the power of the Spirit, he went to the cross and suffered. And in the power of the Spirit, he was raised from the dead. Now he comes to the Father to ask the Father for the Spirit for his people. And the Father gives him the Spirit to pour out upon his church his people. What a window into the glories of heaven. Now, verse 33 is part of the sermon Peter preached at Pentecost. And for any Jew who had not believed on Jesus, these words Peter preached would have been absolutely shocking. Absolutely shocking. Fifty days ago, the Jesus of Nazareth that Peter's talking about had been condemned by the church, executed by the pagan Roman government, beaten, spit upon, hung naked on the cross, and was seen dead. And now Peter's saying to these Jews, the Jesus who died 50 days ago, whom you counted a criminal and a blasphemer, is on the throne of the universe. You see, the people in Pentecost here gathered for the festival. They hear the disciples of Jesus as the Spirit comes upon them, beginning to speak in tongues, which, which were not some ecstatic speech, but it was, it was foreign languages, so that people had come from all over the world. The Jews had been dispersed abroad, and many of them had come home to Jerusalem. They're hearing now in their native tongue the works of God being prophesied, being proclaimed. And they say, what's going on? What does this mean? And some say, ah, they're drunk. They took too much license at the festival. And Peter says, oh, no. Oh, no. He says in verse 22, men of Israel... Jesus of Nazareth, the very one God testified to among you by all the miracles he worked through Jesus, the very one that, that you killed, God raised up. Now, how high did you raise him? Verse 33, he exalted him to the right hand of God, to the place of all authority in heaven and on earth. The Jews had thought he was quite dead. What a revelation to find out he's not just alive, but he sits on the throne above. They had thought Jesus was a worthless man, right? And, and they had thought that the, the very death of Jesus, by mo- way of the most shameful instrument of death, the cross, was the very proof that he wasn't the Christ, right? I mean, God would not let his Christ be condemned and hung on a cross. The cross was horrifying. People didn't even speak about the cross in polite society. It was too awful. And so the fact he dies on a cross is the proof to them that he's not the Messiah. But now Peter says you got it all wrong. Suffer for the sins of his people. And he's been raised in glory. He's ascended. And he's alive and he's ruling. Peter says in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What's happened? Well, 
the, the Christ has accomplished his work perfectly, right? He came in obedience to his Father. He, he fulfilled this ministry. He proclaimed God to people. He, he died to satisfy the wrath of God against the sins of all of God's people. And having done that, he's completed his work. He's raised up and he's received back into glory. The, the angels of heaven shout for joy. The Father delights and the Son who's come home now having accomplished his mission. He sits him upon the throne. And it's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong. Now, that's the language of warfare. A king goes off to battle. He defeats the enemy. He takes all the plunder. He goes back to his city to distribute the riches, the spoils of war. Well, God sent his son. He came in human nature. He did battle with Satan. He bore the curse. He won the victory. He ascends to heaven. And he comes to his father to receive the spoils of victory. Give me the spirit that I may pour him out upon my people. The same spirit that Jesus was anointed with in his human nature. To perform all of his work so perfectly is the Spirit poured out now upon Christ's people. And it's a fulfillment of Psalm 2. I have installed my King on Zion, my holy hill. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The surest proof that Christ has now gone into heaven and said, Okay, Father, you said, ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. The surest proof that the Son has now asked his Father, Grant me the inheritance, is the outpouring of the Spirit which now the nations will be brought to Jesus Christ and to bow at his throne. Do you see how much the Father loves his Son? Do you see how much the Father delights in his Son? That having exalted Jesus, his Son now in human nature, having completed his work, having exalted him to the right hand, the Father gives him now the Spirit. And that Spirit, the nations will be gathered out of their darkness and their sinful death. And that Spirit now, that the promise of Abraham... God said to Abraham, and you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen now. Out of Jerusalem will go missionaries to the world. Out of Jerusalem will go Bible translators to the world. No one saw Jesus sit down on the throne. Nobody on earth, right? His disciples saw Jesus ascend, and then a cloud hid him from their sight. Nobody saw Jesus sit down on the throne. But this is the proof he sat down. The spirits poured out. And so... Jesus, who said to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, has now asked the Father and has given us that helper. But this, brothers and sisters, is our comfort now to know that Christ reigns. We are often troubled in our personal lives. We are often troubled in our civil life as we look at our country, wonder what direction it's going. As we look around the world and see warfare and conflict and persecution of Christians, but this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. They conspired to kill Jesus, and God raised him. And he has set his son 
And now men on earth who don't know Jesus Christ, they rage against the Lord Jesus. They despise his word. And God in heaven laughs because you're not going to take my son from the throne. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the signs of Pentecost have ceased, haven't they? We don't hear this morning a sound of a mighty rushing wind filling our worship room here. We don't see tongues of fire on each other's heads. We don't suddenly know how to speak in languages we never studied. And yet, the evidence of Pentecost is with us. What is the evidence of Pentecost? Well, at the end of the chapter... As these people here, they've killed Christ and they they repent and believe. There's 3,000 souls added and chapter 2 ends with this glorious fellowship of God's people. Devoted to the word and its teaching. Devoted to each other, to sharing and loving each other. Devoted to the Lord's Supper. The church of Jesus Christ is the evidence of Pentecost. But above all, the preaching of the gospel is the evidence that Pentecost has occurred. The gospel is being proclaimed throughout the world, though all the forces of Satan are against it. The gospel is going forward into all kinds of languages, Bible translations made, missionaries sent out. Here the gospel is being preached this morning to you in English. Not Aramaic or Greek or Latin or Hebrew. This is... The proof and the evidence of Pentecost, and therefore the proof that Christ sits upon the throne. And if Christ sits upon the throne, then, then that means something for our lives, doesn't it? It means there's a king, a king on the throne. We should be glad, we should rejoice. He's our king. We, we should find comfort in him. He's not going to let his church be destroyed. And we should bow before him in every area of our life. We should see ourselves as his, as his soldiers As his citizens, it should be our delight to obey him and to follow him. You say, well, the world says he's not important. He doesn't exist. They ignore him. Yes, but that doesn't change anything, does it? I mean, here at Pentecost, there were all kinds of Jews who knew the whole Old Testament, who believed in their minds up until this moment Peter starts preaching, who believed firmly in their minds that Jesus of Nazareth was a blasphemer, an imposter, and deserved to die and is now dead. But their belief didn't change anything. At the very moment they thought that, he was on the throne. Why are we so worried what the world thinks? Why do we expect the world to get it? Why, why do we think that what they think and what they play on the news determines history? Christ this morning sits on the throne of the universe. The kingdoms belong to him. The nations belong to him. And the evidence is the fact that the Spirit has been poured out. If you feel maligned for believing on Jesus or doing what's right, you're not alone. They called the early disciples filled with the Spirit a bunch of drunks. They crucified Jesus. None of that changes the reality. Jesus is king. But if he's king, and if his spirit is now poured out, then it means something secondly this morning. It means the dawn of a new age. The dawn of a new age. In verse 33, we read that 
Jesus exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus spoke about the promise of the Father to give the Spirit, but but these Jews that Peter's preaching to probably didn't know about the words Jesus spoke about the promise of the Spirit. But you know what all these Jews knew? They knew the Old Testament prophets, which promised the outpouring of the Spirit. You know, as I mentioned in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, for instance, and other prophets, it was when God's people were in a bad place, when they had been disobedient and exiled, removed from the land. It looked like the kingdom of Israel was no more, that the son of David would never reign again. It was in those moments God said, you know what? You look dead. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you and your children. And glorious things are going to happen. I'm going to make the church new. A new creation, a new covenant. Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Or in Joel here, uh, or in Acts 2, Peter quotes from Joel, right? Verse 17, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. The, the outpouring of the Spirit of Pentecost is not some random event. It's the very thing that God planned and purposed and prophesied in Scripture. And it represents the beginning of a new age. Sometimes people think that Pentecost is this repeatable event, and you need to have your Pentecost, I need to have my personal Pentecost. No. Just like the, the, the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, these are once-for-all events. Pentecost was an unrepeatable event. It was the moment in time. When the ascended Christ received the reward of the Spirit and he poured them out. Now you can come into Pentecost. Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch theologian, statesman, he used the illustration of a, of a, of a town uh, that was just getting running water. And, and they, they build the whole water system and then there comes a moment when, when the mayor of the town says it's all completed. Here we go. And he turns on the lever and running water flows to all the houses in the town that have been connected. That's the event. It's once for all the water's turned on. Now, in the future, other houses can be built and hooked up to the water system, but the once for all event of the town getting water doesn't occur again. Those who are called by the Spirit come into that flow of the Spirit. But the turning on of the Spirit happened once for all. These are, Joel says, Peter says it, Verse 17, it shall come to pass in the last days. Has anybody ever asked you, you know, to look at the news, do they ever ask you, you know, are, are we in the last days? Do you think we're in the last days? You don't need to hesitate at all. You need to say, absolutely, absolutely, we are in the last days. Whether we're in the last day of the last days, that's debatable. But we are, ever since the outpouring of the Spirit, we are in the last days. We have entered into the final stage of redemptive history. There is only one singular event still to happen in the history of the world. And that is the return of Jesus Christ on the clouds of glory to judge the living and the dead. There are no more redemptive events 
birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit. Five events. There's one to go and only one. The outpouring of the Spirit by the exalted Jesus has brought us into the final era. And therefore, the Bible says it doesn't matter how many years go by. It's been almost 2,000 years since the Spirit was poured out. This entire epoch from the outpouring of the Spirit to the coming of Jesus is the last days. Now, that's important. Because we, we get distracted in our lives sometimes. We, maybe you say, I can't, is it, is it Wednesday? No, it's Friday. Oh, I, get, I get so mixed up where we are. don't know what time it is. We get mixed up in our lives in other ways. We forget where we stand in redemptive history. And the Lord says, don't get mixed up. You're in the last days. This is the final stage. We've come to the last quarter of the game. The the two-minute warning has been sounded. It's, It's the end. And therefore, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. There should be urgency in our lives. There should be energy about the cause of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I read from Romans chapter 13, where where it says you should love your neighbor. But then it says, and do this knowing the time. Knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, Let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us not walk, let us walk, excuse me, let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. If If we're thinking to ourselves, you know, i got plenty of time. Sometimes as young people we do this, we think, you know, I'm going to get serious about the Lord later. Then I'll be like my mom and dad, like adults or whatever. But I got time. Or maybe even as adults we keep saying, you know, it doesn't seem so urgent right now. I'm going to get urgent about Christ when I get older, after I accomplish my business. Or That's a foolish way to live. You're in the last days. Wake up. Wake out of sleep. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus has taken the throne. So what Elijah said would be said to all of us, you know, if Baal is God, go serve him. But if the Lord Jesus Christ is God, if he's the king, then you better bow down and serve him. You can't serve two kingdoms. So there's that warning and that call to urgency. But these are also glorious days in which to live, aren't they? He who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist because we've received the outpouring of the Spirit. And this Spirit renews our hearts. This Spirit comes in great measure to assure us that we are the children of God to comfort us. This Spirit is actually your first installment of heaven. For all those who believe on Jesus Christ who have his spirit, and every believer has the spirit. It's no second blessing later on. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit. And if you have that spirit, it's the first installment of eternity. It's the first installment of your eternal inheritance. It's God 
with you. It's our taste of the age to come. So let me ask you, do you know what time it is? Are you aware of the age in which you live? Do you recognize that unlike all the saints of the Old Testament, you now stand in the messianic era, the dawn of a new age has begun. And your life is to be focused on one culminating event, the return of Jesus from heaven. When you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you enjoy the flowers, when you eat and drink, you, like all of creation, are to be living on your tiptoes looking for the grand, consummating event, the return of Jesus from heaven. And wherever that's not the case, then we have forgotten what day of the week it is. But where we remember that's the case, we are emboldened to lay it all on the line, to yield our lives to Jesus Christ, and to speak his name. And so that brings us to this last point, that the outpouring of the Spirit is not just the evidence of Christ's enthronement. It's not just the signal that the dawn of a new age has come, but it is the power for the advance of Christ's kingdom. The Spirit is poured out. The same Spirit that Christ was anointed with is now poured out upon us because we are Christ's representatives and we are to carry on his mission, which is to exalt his name and to extend his dominion. And so three signs accompanied the Spirit's arrival in Acts chapter 2, right? The first sign was this roar of a rushing wind. It's interesting in the Bible that both in the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek, there is a word that can mean one of three things. It can mean wind, or it can mean spirit, or it can mean breath. And so these three things are, always, are often wrapped together in the Bible. The wind, the breath, the spirit. And so at the beginning of creation, we read about the spirit of God hovering over the waters. He's going to prepare to arrange creation and to order it, uh, to make that first creation. But now that spirit of God, which was also the breath of God, by which God took dust and formed a man and he breathed into him and he became a living being. Now at the dawn of a new creation, the spirit in roaring power comes in where the 120 are assembled and the spirit says, I'm here to make a new creation. Jesus told Nicodemus, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. He says, how can I be born again? And Jesus, remember Jesus told him, well, the wind... You hear its sound, you can't tell where it came from, where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit, sovereign, mighty, life-giving Spirit. God told Ezekiel, as he looked at the valley of dry bones, to prophesy to the wind, to the breath, to come and fill these bones and make them live. And that's what Pentecost is. The Spirit has come upon the face of the earth, over a planet filled with skeletons. People dead in sin and beneath the wrath of God. And to breathe the breath of God into them and to give them life. Sometimes we get upset that our neighbors don't care about the gospel. They don't listen to me. Well, don't be discouraged. When the Spirit of God chooses to save, they won't be able to stop him. You can't give your neighbor new life. You can't turn the heart of your loved one to the Lord. You need to be a faithful witness, of course, but... You have not the power to give life. 
God breathes life into the dead, and only God. Not the President of the United States, not our legislators, not our, our cultural elites. The breath of life, the Spirit comes from above. But then there's a second sign. It was these tongues of fire on their head. And fire in the Old Testament was God's presence with his people, right? The, the fiery pillar that led them. The burning bush Moses saw. And now the Lord is saying, you people are my new temple. I'm going to send you out into all the world. Not just in Jerusalem where the temple stands. Forget that temple. You are the temple. And wherever you go in the world, I'll be with you. And then there was one more sign. That sign of speaking in foreign languages. Aren't these uneducated Galileans? How do they speak all of our languages? What was God doing? Well, you know the answer. He was reversing the curse of the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, man tried to reach up to God and pull down God's blessing, and God said no. And he scattered people, and he confused their languages. But when we couldn't reach up to heaven, God came down to us in Jesus Christ, died our death. And having done that, he's been exalted to heaven. He reached into heaven. Christ did. And now he gives heaven to us, God the Spirit. And by that Spirit now, these disciples speak in foreign languages. That unique, miraculous activity would cease. But the preaching of the gospel to the nations would not end. And so today, the Bible is translated in how many languages. Missionaries are sent out into all kinds of cultures and countries. Christ is gathering a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And already he's assembled in heaven, our people of all different ethnicities and languages. And yet, on Sunday morning here, spread across the globe, there's a church of the Lord Jesus Christ all speaking the same language. The language of faith. And wherever you travel in this world, you might well find a believer with whom you perhaps cannot converse, and yet in reality you speak the same language. Confession of sin, trust in Jesus Christ, and the hope of his return. This spirit brings a glorious unity that a creation has been so fractured and divided Note well our own country. In Jesus Christ, a new humanity of this kind of unity. Brothers and sisters who love each other, who pray for each other, and who together submit to the word of the great king. Do you see what Christ is doing? Do not be overly impressed with the works of man. Look up to heaven. And see your king. Recognize the working of the Spirit among us and give glory to Christ. He's been exalted and his kingdom comes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for giving us a window into the reality that Christ is upon the throne and you've given him the Spirit and he with delight has poured that Spirit over his church. May we be strong in the Spirit to declare the mighty works of God through Jesus Christ, to announce the name of our Savior, we pray that you would work in the hearts that, that hear the gospel preached and you would bring them to saving faith. We thank you, O God, for your great mercies. We pray that you'd help us to stand in awe of Christ's reign and of the power of his spirit, in whose name we pray, amen.